This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. I'm Andrew Kern. Welcome to another episode of Ask Andrew, in which each week I try to address a question that you're sending me about classical education. And today I have um, a very interesting question that apparently has been uh, triggered by a podcast that we've been doing that David does, where I guess the, the question of the ideal type has come up. And so this is the question that's been passed on to me. The question is, what is the ideal type, and does it necessarily lead to moralizing when you read a story? So, so let me address the, let me address both parts of that question. Um, and actually, let me add a third part to it, and and that's sort of the assumption behind it, and that's the question: What does it mean to moralize literature, and is that a bad thing? Well, the answer to that last question is yes, it's a bad thing. What does it mean to moralize literature? What it means to moralize literature is to reduce a story, to reduce a piece of literature to a little fable, to a little tale in which the real point is some predetermined moral point that the writer or the teacher wants to get across to the kid. Kind of the worst moralizing that we, we all are inclined to do is parents and adults and teachers, is we see some child who has a particular vice or a particular, I don't know, some some bad habit and we want to go after it. And so what we're going to do is bring in a story that will address that. Maybe maybe the kid is lazy, so we're going to read The Three Little Pigs. And, 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 and The Three Little Pigs has a moral to it, right? It's work hard or the wolf's going to get into your house. All right, fine. 
that's there. That's part of the story. But if you reduce it to that and you make it kind of the point of telling the story is to rebuke the child, that's kind of an extreme version of moralizing. But the common version is where we just simply reduce the story to its moral. We we read the Iliad uh, so that the person will, I don't know, realize that he has to fight hard in battle or something like that. And we reduce it to, to nothing but, or even we, we reduce it to something where the real point of the story is to, to get a moral across. Well, why is that a problem? Well, it, because it's a reduction, because it's insulting to the person reading the story and the person who wrote the story. It's disrespectful. And in that sense, it's immoral. Why, why do I say that? Well, two reasons. One is because humans are so much more than moral beings. Yes, I said that. And two, because stories are so much more than moral vessels. Well, what do I mean by humans are so much more than moral beings? Well, at least I mean this. We don't only exist morally. There aren't only, for example, moral virtues. There are also physical virtues, and they're good. We have intellectual virtues, and they're good. Anything that we are created to do is innately good. And therefore, while we broke down and we have moral problems, we have every kind of problem. We have intellectual, physical, um, spiritual, social. We have all kinds of problems, and they don't boil down to just moral problems. It isn't just that we're morally bad. It's that we're bad, broken, ruined in every way. And stories are a means of healing properly used. Not just moral instruction, but healing. And the trouble is when we, when we go through life thinking the basic problem here is that we don't do the right things. Can I put it this way? We're, we're focused on the hands instead of the heart. Uh, we're focused on the actions instead of the spirit that's, that's leading to the actions. And we need deep and profound healing in every aspect of our being. We need, we need artistic healing. In fact, I would go so far as to argue that the world, the creation, the cosmos is a work of art before it's a moral. Well, of course, in the creation, you, you can't distinguish them, but it's revealed to us as a work of art before it's revealed to us as a moral battleground. In Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which tells us God's a creator. He's an artist. And I come back to this a lot. We have to remember that that's what we first learn about him. The first thing we learn about him, that's by design. We enter into a moral battle after we fall into sin. And why do we enter into a moral battle at all? Because the serpent entered the garden and tempted Eve to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There wasn't even any knowledge of moral issues until after that. And, and so, so I think what we need to keep straight, what the Bible clearly teaches us, is that our problem is not first and foremost moral. It includes a moral dimension. But it goes way beyond that. It's human. In fact, it's broken image. So human beings are much more than moral beings, moral entities. They are artistic and creative. 
They are physical, and the physical body is a good thing. To be strong and fast is good. It's something we should be emphasizing more, I think. We are social beings. To be skilled with the use of sentences and paragraphs and and the ability to discuss things with people is a good thing. We are intellectual beings, which means we can understand things. We, we can see the intelligible essence of a thing with our soul. To cultivate that, our humanity depends on it. In that sense, you could say we're metaphysical beings. We do think and ask questions about really hard things. And if every story is reduced to a morality tale, then we never learn how to see beyond moral decisions. And then we're spiritual beings. And that's more important than the fact that we're moral beings, if there's a, a difference. And I think, I think if there's a difference, the spiritual is more important than the moral. But don't reduce the spiritual to the moral if you're saying, well, there is no difference. If you're reducing the spiritual to the moral, then you've just moralized in the worst possible way. Is there an intimate connection between spirituality and morality? Yes, I would say so. But spirituality and morality aren't the same thing. In the same sense, just as humans have artistic, physical, social, intellectual, and spiritual uh, qualities, so, so therefore a book touches on all of those things. And more importantly to the question, the ideal type is not just a morally good person. The ideal type is an artistically, physically, socially, intellectually, and spiritually good person, a complete person, a person who transcends. And that person isn't understandable by most of us. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 3 that the, 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 the um, spiritual person is, is judged by no man, by, which I take to, to mean that nobody understands him. But he knows, he understands everything, he judges everything. That's fascinating to me. So, so when, we, when we reduce a, a text to a morality tale and the goal is to get an application for the moral realm, that's not good reading. And it's disrespectful to the author and to the reader. The ideal type, on the other hand, includes all of those elements of humanity, the human being, in the right order. Therefore, to summarize, the ideal type is the perfect person. The virtuous person would be a good way to put it as long as you don't now suddenly reduce virtue to morality, which I think people do. Virtue means a great deal more than morally good. It means every human excellence. So the ideal type is the perfect human person. Moralizing falls way short. In fact, the ideal type literally delivers us from moralizing because it is so much more than mere, what, mere morality. The ideal type is the only thing I think that can deliver us from moralizing because if we do away with the ideal type and just try to keep rules, and I don't know what other alternative there would be. I suppose we could just fall into despair and say there is nothing good. But if we do away with the ideal type and, and just try to be rule keepers, then we don't become the ideal type. We just become very annoying. 
So the ideal type delivers us from moralizing, and therefore it's part of the answer to the prayer, deliver us from evil. So if the question is, what is the ideal type and, how, and does it lead to moralizing, the ideal type is the complete human being, perfect in all his ways. And it therefore cannot lead to moralizing because moralizing is the inferior human being. If you are finding yourself inclined to moralize in light of the ideal type, I want to challenge you to rethink it because you have a much too small conception of what a human being is and you have a very um, inadequate view of what it means to be the divine image. So there, there it is. That's, that's my answer to the question. The ideal type is a perfect human being and no, it doesn't lead us into moralizing. It saves us from moralizing. And what I want to do now, and I'm going to try to do this going forward, is, is ask an, uh, uh, answer another question shorter. So I'm going to try to do a, each session, I'm going to try to do a longer and a shorter question. That way I can cover more and leave people really unhappy with my second answers. And the second question is from somebody named Melanie who is asking about assessment. This is a very practical question on assessment, of specifically of handwriting. And Melanie says that um, she's been listening to the podcasts about assessment and skills assessment in particular and asks, how would you handle a student around 10 who, though he has been taught to form letters well, chooses to not use that skill regularly in his writing and has developed a regular habit of bad handwriting? Well, I, I think what I would do is accept that that's what people do. That would be my starting point. Um, He's got the ability to do really well, and sometimes he will, and sometimes he won't, just like a person who is being coached in basketball will sometimes really insist on doing everything the way the coach says, and sometimes he'll just play and goof around. And basically, you have the tension between the very practical fact that people want to get their work done, and that's not unique to children. They just want to get the work done, and the more high ideal sense that one should do one's work beautifully and perfectly and well every time. Well, I mean, if you have the ability to do things perfectly every time, I say go for it. Um, I suppose you might be able to convince your child to do things perfectly if you only demand it for a minute or two and um, or, you know, give them an infinite quantity of time. But the fact is our kids, like all human beings, like us as adults, we want to get the work set before us done and we want to go on to the next thing. So I don't want to be dismissive, but I think you have to accept that reality. There's nothing you can do to alter that reality that I'm aware of. However, having said so, therefore, there are some practical things, and I think I would recommend two in particular. One is I would have a time during which he does have to write perfectly. He does have to write well. Don't don't have him write perfectly. He just has to form his letters the way you've taught him to do so, and he has to make it very readable. And there, there's two reasons or two motives for that, two, uh, two times during which. Uh, let me say two kinds of assignment or two kinds of writing that I would recommend this. One is I would encourage you to have your child practice handwriting for about three to five minutes every day. Hold the pencil correctly, sit correctly, do everything perfectly for three to five minutes. And during that three to five minutes, you demand the highest quality you possibly can. And, I, and my advice, honestly, is do that right through high school. Um, it doesn't hurt him to do it for three to five minutes a day. And it pays off. It really does pay off. The second time is when other people have to read it. 
Okay. Now that's important because now it's not just a question of practicality. It's a question of respect. You need to show respect to the person who's going to read the, the handwriting that you're working on. And I believe handwriting to be very important. So if, if you have to read the paper and you can't, I recommend you simply give it back to your child and say, this looks like it might be good work, but I can't read it. Um, do it with respect. Do it just as matter of fact. Don't let it be a fight. Just give it back and say, here, rewrite it. And at first they'll resist. And after time, hopefully they'll become more accepting because there's no escape. So if it's so every day I would have a time of practice. And, and then when something's being written for somebody else, I highly I, I would recommend that those need to be well written. I also would encourage you to let your child simply write in a journal, whatever, however he wants to. And don't even necessarily look at it. But, but, um, and even sometimes something is written for somebody else, but is less important. Okay. In those cases, you make, you make the decision. Um, let them just write badly. And I mean handwriting. And that's just like, as I mentioned earlier, being, you have the, the time when you're coached and there, you have the time when you just goof around. And you need both as a basketball player, as an athlete, as a dancer. And as a handwriter, don't let it be a continual burden where every time he holds a pencil, he has to write perfectly. If he practices for three to five minutes a day, and if he has assignments that are coming in as a last, last draft, let's say, and are going to be handed in to you or to a teacher, if that happens frequently, then he will develop the capacity to write well, and he'll hold on to that. So... That's that's what you need the most. You, you um you mustn't just decide that every time he writes badly, it's because he's in an act of moral rebellion. Sometimes it's just that he wants to get on with his life, and this is a terrible burden you've placed on him. Um, you know, from his perspective, I mean. So live with it. It's 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 not something that's going to go away. Uh, but it's something in which you can work. You know, this, as a general principle, it's just a fact that that most children who are well-behaved are well-behaved for other people and not for their parents. Uh, in the same sense, he's going to probably write better for other people than he is for you. And if he writes better for you than he does for other people and behaves better for you than he does for other people, you might have a manipulation problem going on. So I'm going to end with that nice general principle that you can take any way you like. Um, but Melanie, thank you for asking the question. And I do wish you, I do wish you God's blessing as you, you um, persevere and find that while you teach your child to write better, the Lord is saving and cultivating your soul. It's a great thing to be a mother, isn't it? With that, thank you for listening to Ask Andrew. Keep on seeking those ideal types. They take a long time. May the Lord remember you in his kingdom. 